And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Good evening, everyone. It's podcast 45 for July. We're all busy enjoying the summer, so we have less scabbing time this month. Frank, what do we have instead? Well, we promised you a Ray Bradbury selection a few months back, but didn't deliver. So this month, we have two for you. Also, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. So in celebration, we have some moon landing novelty songs and an interview with John Glenn for some reason. Then we have a short interview with Dave Sheely of the Skunk Ape Research Center. Finally tonight, we have a salute to the Cackle Sisters and their music. And a couple of other things. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started with some Neil Gaiman. I Google you Late at night When I don't know what to do I've seen photos You've forgotten you were in Put up by your friends I Google you When the day is done And everything is through I've seen that journal That you kept that month in France I've watched you dance on YouTube and I'm pleased your name is practically unique it's only you and a would-be PhD from Chesapeake who writes papers on the structure of the sun I've read each one I know that I should let you fade but there's that box and there's your name somehow it never makes 
the pain grow less or fade or disappear I think that I should save my soul and I should crawl back in my hole but it's so easy just to fold and write your name again I fear I Google you When I'm all alone and feeling blue And each scrap of information that I gather Says you found somebody new And it really shouldn't matter But to blow up my computer But instead I Google you Ollie, Ollie, action free! Hey, where's John? What's all the excitement? Wakanda! We can't find John! He was heading that way. Oh no. Check that old refrigerator. Uh, 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 thanks, Ricondo. Remember, never get in anything that could close up and trap you. Like an old trunk or an abandoned refrigerator. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Well, I'm a stranger here. Just floating in your town. Just blowed in your town Because I'm a poor The isolation of the trail through the Everglades has helped spawn numerous legends of wild creatures that stalk the swamp. None has been more persistent than the story of the skunk ape. The reason that I built the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters here on the trail is there's so many sightings in this area. The trail runs right through the Big Cypress Preserve. I'm right on the northern border of the National Park, so it's a good congregating place for, for witnesses, people who've seen things. Just a week ago, I got a report from a lady down the road here, about 20 miles, said she was coming home from work and she drove right past a skunk ape. It was standing right in the US 41, and she drove right past it, it didn't even move. The first time I saw the skunk ape, I was 10 years old, and I was out hunting with my brother. And um, we had a rule in the house that if we could kill a deer before the school bus came, we got to stay home and package the meat. So we were always eager to get out early in the morning, see if we couldn't bag a deer. And that particular morning, it was raining, uh, just drizzling a little bit and we'd walked out back and my brother saw something in the distance but I couldn't see it because I couldn't see over the grass and he had to pick me up and when he picked me up and I looked out there it was a hundred yards out definitely a skunk ape we'd heard about him growing up and we were like 10 years old but 
there it was right in front of us. It was amazing. And we took off running at that time we were afraid. Well, I've seen the skunk ape three times. I, I guess I've just really been blessed in this life. And things like that don't happen by coincidence. When you have an experience like I've had three times, it's, it's life changing. One evening I'm sitting there in my ladder stand, this area, I had been watching it for months and I heard something splashing in the water and it was coming my way. There's a lot of water, surface water out here. And I could hear it splash, splash, splash. And I had kind of dozed off and I looked up and there it was, it was coming right at me maybe a hundred yards, 75 yards away. It came by me, I took 27 photographs of it over a period of about seven minutes. It was uh, quite an experience. It looked like a man covered with hair, about six and a half, a little tall, six and a half, seven feet tall. The closest it came to me was about 50 yards. And as it came past that point, I caught a horrible whiff of uh, skunky odor, like a goat or something, a really strong smell associated with this thing. A lot of people say that it spends time down in the alligator caves and that the sulfur gets on. It's kind of a sulfury smell. Is the Bigfoot and the skunk ape related? Well, I really don't have the information enough to, to say something like that. I know that this is an animal, that it resembles what people call a Bigfoot, but it's much smaller, it's different. This is a great place for people to share information. Uh, they can purchase t-shirts uh, and, and help me uh, fund my research. I sell a few items for my research funding. I've got some wildlife here, some native wildlife people can look at. I've got a little animal exhibit, some drinks and some sandwiches. Well, it all sounds good going out and catching a skunk ape, but the reality is there's only seven, at best, seven to nine of these animals left, according to the calculations that I've kind of devised. The ideal outcome for me having the headquarters here and, and being successful in that is uh, mainly to give a place for people to come and, and talk about the Everglades, which is a good thing. and uh, and. I would like to see possibly in the future some warning signs as people enter the Everglades on US 41 or caution signs, skunk ape crossing, next seven miles, something like that, in areas where they're sighted on a regular basis. You asked me why I am breathing, I'll tell you why I'm grieving, I'm grieving for the gal that done me wrong. Oh, 
is silly, go right ahead and laugh. But the heart in this hillbilly is busted right in half. Cause I left her standing there with a doodad in her hair. But I guess she didn't care so much for me. The folks all tried to show me just why this gal would throw me if I should go and leave her by herself. But I just said, You're crazy, this gal of mine's a daisy. But now she's gone and put me on the shelf. Oh, I left her standing there with a doodad in her hair. I thought when I come back she'd be my bride. But when I got out of sight, oh, she didn't live the night till someone else was sitting by her side. When she said goodbye, she whispered, you know I love you best. And I'll bet two bucks, she whispered, the same to all the rest. Cause I left her standing there with a doodad in her hair. But I guess she didn't care so much for me. yo What we just heard there was the Dezurek sisters. Mary Jane and Carolyn, but they are better known, well, at least to me, as the Cackle Sisters. We briefly introduced them back in our yodeling episode, but we felt they deserved a closer look. So here's our tribute to those talented siblings. They were born on the prairies of Minnesota and grew up on a farm six miles east of Royalton. Like on all farms, the whole family worked to survive, milking the cows, baling the hay, canning the fruits and vegetables, and when they were resting, creating music. The whole family was musical, either singing or playing instruments. But Mary Jane and Carolyn were the most passionate and unique. When they were kids, they listened to the birds, both wild and domestic, and were inspired by the sounds to create different yodels and trick vocalizations, all done in a higher range. This made their singing stand out. Here's a good example of what we're talking about. The Spanish gentleman stood in his retreat And on his guitar played a tune The music so sweet would all times repeat The blessings of my country and you, dear two sisters were older, they started entering amateur contests and won quite a few of them. One of their prizes was for them to appear twice on a radio station, KSTP in St. Paul. Another prize was an invitation to appear at the Morrison County Fair, 
When they sang there, some of the crew from the National Barnyard Dance radio show caught their act, and the sisters were asked to appear on that show on October 17, 1936. A month later, they were hired as full-time employees. The girls appeared on Saturday nights on the radio show and traveled around doing live performances. All this time, they were known as the Dezurich Sisters. So when did the cackle come in? Well, be patient. In 1937, the sisters were hired by Perina Mills Animal Feed Company for their recorded show, Checkerboard Time, which advertised their chicken feed and other Perina goods. The Perina powers that be had heard the sisters sing Little Red Rooster and thought that song would make a great trademark for their show. Because of the contract with Barn Dance, the sisters couldn't sing anywhere else under their own names, so Perina dubbed them the Cackle Sisters for the checkerboard show. Here's another rooster song from the Perina show, followed by Yippee Yippee Yo. What makes the Shanghai go at the break of day? What makes the Shanghai go at the break of day? Let the dominator hen know the headman is on his way. checkerboard time show, the Cackle Sisters were heard in all 48 states, which is all there were at that time. Between the National Barn Dance and the Checkerboard Show, the sisters were known all over the country 
and in 1938, the Vocal Lion label signed Mary Jane and Carolyn to a six-song record contract. One of the songs was I Left Her Standing There, which we opened with. Another one was Arizona Yodeler. Way out in Arizona, in a town they call Winona, where the folks you meet all know a thing or two. Lived a lad of great ambition, who had set as his life's mission to excel upon his own today. And he played a little tune on his Spanish guitar. He'd mingle with the songs of sweet refrain. In the evening in the cactus, he would get a lot of practice on his Once a big shot from the city heard him warbling the ditty, and a company was already Then he said, Look here, my sonny, you can make a lot of money. With the other and he'd play a little tune on his Spanish guitar. He'd mingle with the song this week for praying. Then our hero took the tip and packed his whip and took a trip and soon was singing over the radio to you. If the Swiss heard what he's earning, green with envy they'd be turning when he do met a little maiden who with talents who was laden and she fell for him like flowers for the dew and he wished not to evade her and he used to serenade her with his and he'd play a little tune on his spanish guitar he'd mingle with a song the sweet refrain another from Checkerboard Time, Peach Pickin' Time in Georgia. In 1940, Republic Pictures hired the sisters to star in their film, Barnyard Follies. 
surprisingly, as the Cackle Sisters. They traveled on a promotional tour when the film was released and were at one of their peaks of their career. The sisters went on with their music careers, sometimes taking a break, sometimes apart, then back together again. In 1944, they were again with Perina as the Cackle Sisters. And then they became regulars on the Grand Old Opry. The Cackle Sisters were the first women to be stars on both the National Barn Dance and the Grand Old Opry. Pretty impressive. In 1947, after an automobile accident, Mary Jane retired from show business, this time for good. Carolyn continued on with her husband, Rusty Gill, with the Prairie Ramblers, and even did some TV. In 1956, the Ramblers changed their format from Western to Polka and renamed themselves the Polka Chips. That's right, the Polka Chips. With their new act, the guys continued to appear on Chicago TV and had some success. When the Polka Chips disbanded, Carolyn and Rusty became a duet and starred on ABC on the Polka Ground TV show, a very long way from the Cackle Sisters. From 1956 to 1963, Carolyn was also the yodeling trademark for Bush Bavarian beer. When Polka Go Round finally ended its run, Carolyn called it quits. Now neither of the Cackle Sisters were performing, but they continued to have a happy and full life. In 1981, Mary Jane passed away, and in 2009, Carolyn also passed. It is safe to say that we will never see their kind again. Fortunately, they live on in their recordings for us all to enjoy. Let's go out with another song from the checkerboard time, Hillbilly Wedding in June. A girl wait patiently for me And when I asked if she would wear These are the words my sweetheart said There'll be a hillbilly wedding in June We'll have a farmhouse I own pretty soon And boy I'll soon educate all the rooster to wait With their cock-a-doo-doo-doo until June I thought we'd live with her folks but gosh, that couldn't be, cause they still live with their folks. They were just as smart as me, don't be surprised if we disappear too soon. From that hillbilly wedding in June. Yo, yo, distinguished guest of honor here today, we say once again how proud we all are of him, how proud we are to be Americans when America can produce the type of Colonel Glenn, and we're delighted to honor him today and hope he will say a few words to so many thousands upon thousands of people here at City Hall. Colonel John Glenn. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Vice President, 
distinguished guests, all of you who were so thoughtful to come out and welcome us to New York. We feel that perhaps the efforts we're engaged in do really begin a, a new space era. My flight was but one step in this long progress. The first two steps in that were taken by Al Shepard here and Gus Grissom, who are here on the stand and whom you met just a few minutes ago. Their names need no introduction. Uh, the others hardly need any either, but there will be more names coming up in this line as more space flights occur. You'll be hearing more of Carpenter and Cooper and Shira and Slayton as time goes on, that's for sure. It's been a team effort by us all the way, and we're but part of the whole team that's headed up by Dr. Gilruth, whom you met just a moment ago also. In a larger sense, though, I think we represent all of you on this project. It is a national and really an international project. So really, we are your representatives on all of these missions. This New York tribute this morning is certainly overwhelming. It's, it's, I've just never seen anything like this at all, needless to say. The honors you're bestowing on us today, we accept, but we accept them in the name of the, the whole Mercury team has worked so hard, and we will continue to do our best to represent you as we think we should. Thank you very much. One small step for a man, one giant leap. There's an American flag on the moon tonight Flying red and blue and white There's an American flag waving on the moon Waving on the moon tonight There's an American flag, can't you see? Sitting on the sea of tranquility There's an American flag waving on the moon Waving on the moon tonight I'm not a bit neurotic, not a bit psychotic Oh no, no, I'm only patriotic Gloriowski, what a kick I'm a luna, una, luna, una, lunatic It's an American moon, if you please Refer to it now as American cheese Stars and stripes light up the Milky Way Hey, Apollo 11 delivered our heavenly right to say The man in the moon is a citizen of the USA Stand up and Who's on third? Who, who, who had the very last word? Made the moon. What comes next? Put your money on the New York Mets. World United, all moonlighted. Aren't you proud to say? Hey, there's an American flag on the moon tonight. Flying red and blue and white. An American flag. Waving on the moon. Waving on the moon tonight. You bet. Not a bit sick.
psychotic. Oh, no, no. I'm only patriotic. Gloria, give up a kick. I'm a luna, oh, no. luna, oh, no. lunatic. It's an American food, if you please. Refer to it now as American cheese. Stars and stripes light up the Milky Way. get that neon up here in one piece all the way from Earth. Yeah, I know, Sam. Gee, if the boys from the fourth expedition could see me now, huh? All these years later, I finally got my dream place. Hmm. Yeah, whatever happened to them? Mm. Um, oh, uh, Captain Wilder? Yeah, and Spender? Spender? <laughs> that nut. He was going to save the planet. He killed a lot of good men. Mm. And Wilder, eh, last I heard, he was off to Jupiter. Yeah? <laughs> He's probably retired by now. 
if he hasn't been killed in some fool expedition. <laughs> Too bad they aren't here today to see me. Twenty years later. <laughs> hey, Emmy, look, look at this. I got something I want to show you. Looks like junk. It is not junk. It's glass and pottery. I thought I'd line both sides of the walkway with it. I've been collecting it up in the hills, huh? There's still lots of old Martian cities up there, you know. Don't they call that looting? Emmy. Here, do some sweeping while I arrange this stuff. <laughs> yes, sir. First man on Mars with a hot dog stand. Mm. Best onions and chili on two worlds. And what a location, huh? Right where two main highways come together. Two dead highways. Well, not for long, Emmy. When they start that mining project over there, trucks from the Earth settlement will be passing by here 24 hours a day. Oh, sure. Why, we might even have to put in some gas pumps. <laughs> and pretty soon there'll be thousands of work rockets coming from Earth with 10,000 hungry customers. Ha, I'll believe it when I see it. They'll be here. Now, there. Finished. Yeah? How do you like it? Hmm. Oh, that broken glass looks like an accident waiting to happen to me. Well, I like it. And so will our customers. I tell you, this time next year, we'll be rich. Thousands and thousands of hungry people. <laughs> and all mine. Uh, Sam? Huh? Here's your first customer. You again. What are you doing here? I've come to speak to you. I told you not to come near here. You could catch the disease. You could die. I have had the earth disease. Oh, why do you come down here to bother me? Go back to the hills. Be along. I'll go on. I have come for an important reason. I don't care. I don't like Martians. I told you that this morning. How come I've been here 20 years and never seen a Martian? And all of a sudden you show up twice in one day. Leave me alone, can't you? The days of the Earthmen on Mars are over. Who says? Earth is doomed. This very night. Listen, you. Don't talk to me about Earth. I'm from Earth, New York City. I don't need you telling me what's happening on Earth. Pretty soon there'll be 10,000 men coming from Earth to work on this planet. And sooner or later they've all got to pass by this hot dog stand. And most of them will stop in at least once or twice to have a bite to eat. And I'll be ready for them. And nobody, not even no Martian, is going to get in my way. You see this? It's a gun. After you left this morning, I got it out and loaded it. Sam, be careful with that. You will not listen. Then let me show you this. I have brought this for you. Drop it. I don't know what it is, but drop it. Now get on your way. It is important that you know. You don't think I'll use this, eh? Sam, don't. Oh, Sam. Now, go on. Get, huh? Next time I won't shoot at the ground. Tonight, watch the sky. The sky, Sam? Ah, he's nuts. Hey, look what he dropped. With some kind of picture writing. Martian scribbles. I can't read it. It's nothing. Forget it. Let's shut the sign off and go inside for a while. 
It wouldn't hurt to lock the doors either. Come on. Sweeping. The wind's blowing sand all over my clean walkways. Who cares? There's no customers. Well, there will be. You'll see. It may be quiet now, but... Shh. Sam, listen. What? I don't hear Look. you. Out there, look. Emmy. Emmy. Here they come. They look like sand ships. But they can't be. They look like it to me. But they were all confiscated, sold to museums, sent back to Earth. I'm the only one in this whole territory who's got one and who knows how to run it. Not anymore. Come on, let's get out of here. Hi. They're attacking. Those are Martian sand ships, Emmy. And I took a shot at one of those Martians this morning. Have you forgotten? Come on. Well, where are we going? Into town. Come on, get into the truck. Come on, come on, get in, get in. And let you drive me in a sand ship. No, thank you. There's no time to argue. I've been using this ship the last few weeks to transport supplies. I can do it. Don't get us killed in this thing. Ah, there's nothing to it, really. I'll just let the sail out. Ah, there, there. <sighs> what happens now? We should be moving. Ah, oh, the anchor. I forgot to pull a sand anchor. Here. if they wanted. They just didn't trust. Oh, come off it. I outran them. They just weren't quick enough, that's all. Weren't they? They're getting closer. Look. Don't worry. I've learned a few tricks with this thing. All I gotta do is go move. back. What? Who said that? Go back. Turn this ship around. Sam? Look behind you. Huh? Who? Who are you? What are you doing on my ship? Get off! This isn't your ship. It's as old as our world. It sailed the sand seas 10,000 years ago when the seas were whispered away and the docks 
sort of vision, her ghost. Turn around and go back to the crossroads. We have need to talk with you. No! You're trying to trick me. Now get off my ship. You must return at once. I'm in it! Jump off or I'll shoot you. Don't. I'll count to three, then I'm pulling the trigger. I won't hurt you. Neither will the others. One. Listen to me. Sam, listen to the girl. Two. We only want to talk. Sam. Three. We need to... She's gone. She just turned into smoke. This is crazy. Emmy? Emmy, listen to me. There's nothing to hear, Sam. We'll be in town soon. Then we'll be safe. Then they'll see. I'll show them. They can't harass me and get away with it. I'll show them. I'll show everybody. Go ahead. Show us, Sam. Here comes one of their old cities. A few bullets will fix all those crystal towers. Ha! Hey, ha! Hey, how's that, huh? <laughs> Did you see that? No more city. Oops, I missed one. There. Amy, look. They're closing in. The ships are cutting me off. I, I can't stop them. They've outnumbered me. Stop the ship, Sam. Oh, it's no use. Oh, I'm stopping. Oh, yeah, I'll put out the anchor. Anything? It was all a mistake. I'm an honest man. Just ask anybody. I just wanted to to build the best little hot dog stand you ever saw, right back on the highway. The only hot dog stand on Mars, with the best hot dogs you ever tasted. You know, with chili and onions and maybe some orange juice. Here's my gun. Right here. You can have it. There. I give up. Pick up your gun. Uh, what? Your gun. Pick it up. Put it away. Oh, sure. Sure. Now, turn your ship around and go back to your stand. We will not harm you. You won't? You ran away before we could explain. Please. Return to the crossroads with us. Come. Sure. We'll come back. You betcha. Hammy? Hammy, did you hear that? They aren't going to hurt us. They just want to talk. Come on. We're going back. Sure, Sam. Whatever you say.
Well, <laughs> this is it. Uh, sorry we don't have room for all of you inside, but... Prepare yourselves. Prepare the viands. Prepare the foods and wines. For tonight is indeed a great night. I don't uh, understand. Prepare your place of food. And take this. What is it? Sam, that looks like what the other Martian tried to give us this morning. The scroll has the same picture yeah. writing. It is a deed to all of the territory from the Silver Mountains to the Blue Hills. From the Dead Salt Sea to the distant valleys of Moonstones and Emerald. For me? Mine? Yours. All of it? One hundred thousand miles of territory. You hear that, Emmy? He's giving me all the land, as far as we can see. But why? Why are you giving me all this? That's not all. Here, take these. Look at this. Six more scrolls. More land. I, I must own half of Mars. Emmy, did you hear me? I heard. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Tonight is the night. You must prepare. Be ready. Oh, I will be. <laughs> what is it? A surprise? Are the Earth rockets coming earlier than I thought? <laughs> you must know something I don't, eh? Thousands of men coming to work and eat. And me with the only hot dog stand on the busiest highway next to the busiest mine on Mars. We leave you now. Prepare. The land is yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. Come back sometime when, uh, when you're good and hungry. It'll be on the house. Emmy. Emmy, come on. We gotta get busy. All the hot dogs boiled, the buns warm, the chili cooking. We've got a big night ahead of us. Come on! Yeah, that's all the onions. <laughs> oh boy, am I happy, huh? <laughs> I'm so happy, I'm crying. <laughs> or maybe it's just the onions. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's my lucky day, all right. <laughs> hey, how are those hot dogs coming up? Huh? Enough to feed an army. Oh, just think. That Martian set a surprise tonight. I was surprised enough when they gave me all their land. Can you believe it? Uh, Gee. <laughs> I hope we've got enough napkins. I wasn't expecting all this business quite so soon. If the rockets show up tonight... There'll be 10,000 people on the highway by morning. Uh. <laughs> Tonight of all nights, <laughs> we'll be flooded. Just think of the money we'll make. Listen, you better start peeling some potatoes. I, I don't want to run low on French. Uh. Boy, what a night. Hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. Forget the potatoes for a minute, huh? Let's run out and check the sky and see if those rockets are coming, huh? Come on. All right. It's a beautiful night out here. Smell that breeze. 
It almost reminds me of the sagebrush we smelled on that uh, trip to Arizona one time. <laughs> you see anything? No rockets. Oh, look at Earth tonight. <laughs> Good old Earth. <laughs> Good old wonderful Earth. <laughs> Send me your hungry and your starved. <laughs> Here's Sam Parkhill. His hot dogs all boiled. His chili cooking. Everything neat as a pin. <laughs> Come on, Earth. Send me your rockets. Come on, it's getting chilly out here. Yeah. I guess we should uh, finish up inside. Now, rockets. You hear them? Martians are right. Tonight is the night. No, Sam, not the rockets. Look. What is it? It's Earth. Oh, it can't be. It can't be Earth. You mean it couldn't be Earth? It's caught fire. No. It's burning. It's not Earth. It's not possible. It's not. Well, switch on more lights. Turn up the music. Open the doors. There'll be another batch of customers along in about a million years or so. Oh, great place for a hot dog stand. Yes, sir. No. No. <laughs> Let you in on a little secret, Sam. <laughs> Looks like this is going to be an off season. You walked on the moon before anybody else. You walked on the moon. Neil, I'm never going to forget you. You walked out on the mother effing moon. Looking so smooth in your astronaut suit. Hopping around in that cold vacuum. You walked on the moon before anybody else. You walked on the moon. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for man. You walked on the moon before anybody else. You walked on the moon. You walked on the moon before anybody else. You walked on the moon. Hello, Americans. This is Paul Hardy. They did it. Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Edwin Aldrin have landed safely from their trip to the moon. Here they come now. I'll get an interview with one of them. Now, tell me, sir, it must have been breathtaking to see the Earth from the moon. Uh, would you tell the audience what you thought as you looked back on our world? On Tell me, they said that uh, you had a peculiar way to ward off the meteor showers on the moon. Said you muttered something up at the stars. Uh, could this have been some sort of earthly voodoo, or what did you say? Be careful of stones that you throw. Well, let's go back to the time uh, when you were moving away from the Earth. What was the main thing you were doing during this period? Watching my world. 
It has been rumored that a moon creature talked to you while you were up there. What did that moon creature say? It was also rumored that you and this female moon creature got uh, kind of cozy. What were you doing anyway? Meeting in smoky places. Uh, well, being a moon creature, wasn't she kind of ugly? Be glad you've got what you've got when you've got it. I guess that's true. Beggars can't be choosers. Well, what was your favorite pastime while on the moon? Running Ah, uh, yes, and I heard you got caught. Uh, where did they put you? Solitary. Well, I'm glad to see that you got out of it okay anyway. I'm running out of time, but I did have one more question to ask. Since you found life and music and people on the moon, uh, you know, here on Earth there's country music and rock and roll music and other types of music, but what's the most popular music on the moon? Beer, drink, and music. That's good. Listen, I understand now that you're back, y'all, but undergo weeks of isolation and debriefing. Uh, is there anything you would like to say about this? The easy part's over now. Okay, and before I go, uh, is there anyone you would like to say hi to? Hi there, Bobby Taylor, you son of a gun. Well, that's about all we have time for today. We would like to say uh, that it's been very Make nice. Baker. To... Wait, 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 during the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of evening drew on, within view of the melancholy House of Usher. Mr. William Stendhal paused in his quotation. There, upon a low black hill, stood the house, its cornerstone bearing the inscription 2025 A.D. Mr. Bigelow, the architect, said, It's completed. Here's the key, Mr. Stendhal. The two men stood together silently in the quiet autumn afternoon. Blueprints rustled on the raven grass at their feet. The House of Usher, said Mr. Stendhal with pleasure. Planned, built, bought, paid for. Wouldn't Mr. Poe be delighted? Mr. Bigelow squinted. Is it everything you wanted, sir? Yes. Is the color right? Is it desolate and terrible? Very desolate, very terrible. The walls are bleak? Amazingly so. The tarn, is it black and lurid enough? Most incredibly black and lurid. And the sedge, we've dyed it, you know. Is it the proper gray and ebon? Hideous. Mr. Bigelow consulted his architectural plans. From these he quoted in part. Does the whole structure cause an iciness, a sickening of the heart, a, a dreariness of thought? The house, the lake, the land, Mr. Stendhal? Mr. Bigelow, it's worth every penny. My God, it's beautiful. Thank you. I had to work in total ignorance. Thank the Lord you had your own private rockets, or we'd never have been allowed to bring most of the equipment through. You notice it's always twilight here, this land. Always October. Barren, sterile, dead. Took a bit of doing. We killed everything. 10,000 tons of DDT. Not a snake, frog, or Martian fly left. 
Twilight always, Mr. Stendhal. I'm proud of that. There are machines hidden which blot out the sun. It's always properly dreary. Stendhal drank it in, the dreariness, the oppression, the fetid vapors, the whole atmosphere, so delicately contrived and fitted. And that house, that crumbling horror, that evil lake, the fungi, the extensive decay, plastic or otherwise, who could guess? He looked at the autumn sky. Somewhere above, beyond, far off, was the sun. Somewhere it was the month of April on the planet Mars, a yellow month with a blue sky. Somewhere above, the rockets burned down to civilize a beautifully dead planet. The sound of their screaming passage was muffled by this dim, soundproofed world, this ancient autumn world. Now that my job's done, said Mr. Bigelow uneasily, I feel free to ask what you're going to do with all this. With Usher? Haven't you guessed? No. Does the name Usher mean nothing to you? Nothing. Well, what about this name? Edgar Allan Poe. Mr. Bigelow shook his head. Of course, Stendhal snorted delicately, a combination of dismay and contempt. How could I expect you to know blessed Mr. Poe? He died a long while ago, before Lincoln. All of his books were burned in the great fire. That's 30 years ago, 1995. Ah, said Mr. Bigelow wisely, one of those. Yes, one of those, Bigelow. He and Lovecraft and Hawthorne and Ambrose Bierce and all the tales of terror and fantasy and horror and for that matter, tales of the future, were burned, heartlessly. They passed the law. Oh, it started very small. In 1950 and 60, it was a grain of sand. They began by controlling books of cartoons, and then detective books, and of course films, one way or another, one group or another, political bias, religious prejudice, union pressures. There was always a minority afraid of something, and a great majority afraid of the dark, afraid of the future, afraid of the past afraid of the present, afraid of themselves and shadows of themselves. Oh, I see. Afraid of the word politics, which eventually became a synonym for communism among the more reactionary elements, so I hear. And it was worth your life to use the word. And with a screw tightened here, a bolt fastened there, a push, a pull, a yank, art and literature was soon like a great twine of taffy strung about, being twisted in braids and tied in knots and thrown in all directions until there was no more resiliency and no more savor to it. Then the film cameras chopped short and the theaters turned dark and the print presses trickled down from a great Niagara of reading matter to a mere innocuous dripping of pure material. Oh, the word escape was radical too, I tell you. Was it? It was. Every man, they said, must face reality, must face the here and now. Everything that was not so must go. All the beautiful literary lies and flights of fancy must be shot in midair. So they lined them up against the library wall one Sunday morning 30 years ago in 1995. They lined them up, St. Nicholas and the Headless Horseman, and Snow White and Rumpelstiltskin and Mother Goose. Oh, what a wailing! And shot them down, and burned the paper castles and the fairy frogs and old kings and the people who lived happily ever after. For of course it was a fact that nobody lived happily ever after and once upon a time became no more, 
and they spread the ashes of the phantom rickshaw with the rubble of the land of Oz. They filleted the bones of Glinda the Good and Ozma and shattered polychrome in a spectroscope and served Jack Pumpkinhead with meringue at the biologist's ball. The beanstalk died in a bramble of red tape. Sleeping Beauty awoke at the kiss of a scientist and expired at the fatal puncture of his syringe. And they made Alice drink something from a bottle which reduced it to a size where she could no longer cry, curiouser and curiouser. And they gave the looking glass one hammer blow to smash it and every red king an oyster away. He clenched his fists. Lord, how immediate it was. His face was red and he was gasping for breath. As for Mr. Bigelow, he was astounded at this long explosion. He blinked and at last said, uh, Sorry, I don't know what you're talking about, just, uh, just names to me. From what I hear, the burning was a good thing. Get out, screamed Stendhal. You've done your job, now let me alone, you idiot. Mr. Bigelow summoned his carpenters and went away. Mr. Stendhal stood alone before his house. Listen here, he said to the unseen rockets. I came to Mars to get away from you, clean-minded people. But you're flocking in thicker every day like flies to offal. So I'm going to show you. I'm going to teach you a fine lesson for what you did to Mr. Poe on Earth. As of this day, beware. The House of Usher is open for business. He pushed a fist at the sky. The rocket landed. A man stepped out, jauntily. He glanced at the house, and his gray eyes were displeased and vexed. He strode across the moat to confront the small man there. Your name, Stendhal? Yes. I'm Garrett, investigator of moral climates. So you finally got to Mars, you moral climate people. I wondered when you'd appear. We arrived last week. We'll soon have things as neat and tidy as Earth. The man waved an identification card irritably toward the house. Suppose you tell me about that place, Stendhal. It's a haunted castle, if you like. I don't like Stendhal. I don't like the sound of that word, haunted. Simple enough. In this year of our Lord, 2025, I have built a mechanical sanctuary. In it, copper bats fly on electronic beams. Brass rats scuttle in plastic cellars. Robot skeletons dance. Robot vampires, harlequins, wolves, and white phantoms compounded of chemical and ingenuity live here. That's what I was afraid of, said Garrett, smiling quietly. I'm afraid we're going to have to tear your place down. I knew you'd come out as soon as you discovered what went on. I'd have come sooner, but we at Moro Climates wanted to be sure of your intentions before we moved in. We can have the dismantlers and burning crew here by supper. By midnight, your place will be raised to the cellar, Mr. Stendhal. I consider you somewhat of a fool, sir, spending hard-earned money on a folly. Why, it must have cost you three million dollars. Four million. But, Mr. Garrett, I inherited twenty-five million when very young. I can afford to throw it about. Seems a dreadful shame, though, to have the house finished only an hour and have you race out with your dismantlers. Couldn't you possibly let me play with my toy for just, well, twenty-four hours? You know the law strict to the letter. No books, no houses, nothing to be produced which in any way suggests ghosts, vampires, fairies, or any creature of the imagination. You'll be burning Babbitts next. You've caused us a lot of trouble, Mr. Stendhal. It's in the record. Twenty years ago, on Earth. You and your library. Yes, me and my library. 
and a few others like me. Oh, Poe's been forgotten for many years now, and Oz and the other creatures. But I had my little cash. We had our libraries, a few private citizens, until you sent your men around with torches and incinerators and tore my 50,000 books up and burned them, just as you put a stake through the heart of Halloween and told your film producers that if they made anything at all, they would have to make and remake Ernest Hemingway. My God, how many times have I seen For Whom the Bell Tolls done? Thirty different versions, all realistic. Oh, realism. Oh, here. Oh, now. Oh, hell. It doesn't pay to be bitter. Mr. Garrett, you must turn in a full report, mustn't you? Yes. Then, for curiosity's sake, you'd better come in and look around. It'll take only a minute. All right, lead the way, and no tricks. I have a gun with me. The door to the House of Usher creaked wide. A moist wind issued forth. There was an immense sighing and moaning, like a subterranean bellows breathing in the lost catacombs. A rat pranced across the floor stones. Garrett, crying out, gave it a kick. It fell over, the rat did, and from its nylon fur streamed an incredible horde of metal fleas. Amazing, Garrett bent to see. An old witch sat in a niche, quivering her wax hands over some orange and blue tarot cards. She jerked her head and hissed through her toothless mouth at Garrett, tapping her greasy cards. Death, she cried. Now that's the sort of thing I mean, said Garrett. Deplorable. I'll let you burn her personally. Will you really? Garrett was pleased. Then he frowned. I must say you're taking this all so well. It was enough just to be able to create this place. To be able to say I did it. To say I nurtured a medieval atmosphere in a modern, incredulous world. I have a somewhat reluctant admiration for your genius myself, sir. Garrett watched the mist drift by, whispering and whispering, shaped like a beautiful and nebulous woman. Down a moist corridor, a machine whirled, like the stuff from a cotton candy centrifuge. Mists sprang up and floated, murmuring in the silent halls. An ape appeared, out of nowhere. Hold on, cried Garrett. Don't be afraid. Stendhal tapped the animal's black chest. A robot, copper skeleton and all, like the witch. See? He stroked the fur, and under it, metal tubing came to light. Yes. Garrett put out a timid hand to pet the thing. But why, Mr. Stendhal? Why all this? What obsessed you? Bureaucracy, Mr. Garrett. But I haven't time to explain. The government will discover soon enough. He nodded to the ape. All right. Now. The ape killed Mr. Garrett. Are we almost ready, Pikes? Pikes looked up from the table. Yes, sir. You've done a splendid job. Well, I'm paid for it, Mr. Stendhal, said Pike softly, as he lifted the plastic eyelid of the robot and inserted the glass eyeball to fasten the rubberoid muscles neatly. There. The spitting image of Mr. Garrett. What do we do with him, sir? Pikes nodded at the slab where the real Mr. Garrett lay dead. Better burn him, Pikes. We wouldn't want two Mr. Garretts, would we? Pikes wheeled Mr. Garrett to the brick incinerator. Goodbye. He pushed Mr. Garrett in and slammed the door. Stendhal confronted the robot, Garrett. You have your orders, Garrett? 
Yes, sir, the robot set up. I'm to return tomorrow climates. I'll file a complimentary report. Delay action for at least 48 hours. Say I'm investigating more fully. Right, Garrett. Goodbye. The robot hurried out to Garrett's rocket, got in, and flew away. Stendhal turned. Now, Pikes, we send the remainder of the invitations for tonight. I think we'll have a jolly time. Don't you? Considering we waited 20 years, quite jolly. They winked at each other. Seven o'clock. Stendhal studied his watch. Almost time. He twirled the sherry glass in his hand. He sat quietly. Above him, among the oaken beams, the bats, their delicate copper bodies hidden under rubber flesh, blinked at him and shrieked. He raised his glass to them. To our success. Then he leaned back, closed his eyes, and considered the entire affair. How he would savor this in his old age. This paying back of the antiseptic government for its literary terrors and conflagrations. Oh, how the anger and hatred had grown in him through the years. Oh, how the plan had taken a slow shape in his numbed mind until that day three years ago when he had met Pikes. Ah, yes, Pikes. Pikes with the bitterness in him as deep as a black charred well of green acid. Who was Pikes? Only the greatest of them all. Pikes, the man of 10,000 faces, a fury, a smoke, a blue fog, a white rain, a bat, a gargoyle, a monster. That was Pikes. Better than Lon Chaney, the father, Stendhal ruminated. Night after night, he had watched Chaney in the old, old films. Yes, better than Chaney. Better than that other ancient mummer? What was his name? Karloff? Far better. Lugosi? The comparison was odious. No, there was only one Pikes, and he was a man stripped of his fantasies now, no place on earth to go, no one to show off to, forbidden even to perform for himself before a mirror. Poor, impossible, defeated Pikes. How must it have felt, Pikes, the night they seized your films, like entrails yanked from the camera, out of your guts, clutching them in royals and wads to stuff them up a stove to burn away? Did it feel as bad as having some 50,000 books annihilated with no recompense? Yes, yes. Stendhal felt his hands grow cold with a senseless anger. So what more natural than they would one day talk over endless coffee pots into innumerable midnights, and out of all the talk and the bitter brewings would come the House of Usher. A great church bell rang. The guests were arriving. Smiling, he went to greet them. Full grown, without memory, the robots waited. In green silks, the color of forest pools, in silks, the color of frog and fern, they waited. In yellow hair, the color of the sun and sand, the robots waited. Oiled, with two bones cut from bronze and sunk in gelatin, the robots lay. In coffins for the not dead and not alive, in planked boxes, the metronomes waited to be set in motion. There was a smell of lubrication and lathed brass. There was a silence of the tomb yard, sexed but sexless, the robots, named but unnamed, and borrowing from humans everything but humanity, 
The robots stared at the nailed lids of their labeled FOB boxes in a death that was not even a death, for there never had been a life. And now there was a vast screaming of yanked nails. Now there was a lifting of lids. Now there were shadows on the boxes and the pressure of a hand squirting oil from a can. Now one clock was set in motion, a faint ticking. Now another, and another, until this was an immense clock shop, purring. The marble eyes rolled wide their rubber lids. The nostrils winked. The robots, clothed in hair of ape and white of rabbit, arose. Tweedledum following Tweedledee. Mock turtle, dormouse, drowned bodies from the sea compounded of salt and whiteweed, swaying, hanging blue-throated men with turned-up clam-flesh eyes and creatures of ice and burning tinsel, lone dwarfs and pepper elves, Tick-Tock, Rugido, St. Nicholas, with a self-made snow flurry blowing on before him, Bluebeard, with whiskers like a settling flame and sulfur clouds from which green fire snouts protruded, and in scaly and gigantic serpentine, a dragon with a furnace in its belly reeled out the door with a scream, a tick, a bellow, a silence, a rush, a wind. Ten thousand lids fell back. The clock shop moved out into Usher. The night was enchanted. A warm breeze came over the land. The guest rockets, burning the sky and turning the weather from autumn to spring, arrived. The men stepped out in evening clothes, and the women stepped out after them, their hair quaffed up in elaborate detail. So that's Usher. But where's the door? At this moment, Stendhal appeared. The women laughed and chattered. Mr. Stendhal raised a hand to quiet them. Turning, he looked up to a high castle window and called, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. And from above, a beautiful maiden leaned out upon the night wind and let down her golden hair. And the hair twined and blew and became a ladder upon which the guests might ascend, laughing into the house. What eminent sociologists, what clever psychologists, what tremendously important politicians, bacteriologists, and neurologists, there they stood within the dank walls. Welcome, all of you. Mr. Tryon, Mr. Owen, Mr. Dunn, Mr. Lang, Mr. Steffens, Mr. Fletcher, and a double dozen more. Come in, come in. Miss Gibbs, Miss Pope, Miss Churchill, Miss Blunt, Miss Drummond, and a score of other women glittering. Eminent, eminent people, one and all. Members of the Society for the Prevention of Fantasy. Advocators of the banishment of Halloween and Guy Fawkes. Killers of bats, burners of books, bearers of torches, good, clean citizens, everyone, who had waited until the rough men had come up and buried the Martians and cleansed the cities and built the towns and repaired the highways and made everything safe. And then, with everything well on its way to safety, the spoil funds, the people with mercurochrome for blood and iodine-colored eyes came now to set up their moral climates and dole out goodness to everyone. And they were his friends. Yes, carefully, carefully he had met and befriended each of them on earth in the last year. Welcome to the vasty halls of death, he cried. Hello, Stendhal. What is all this? You'll see. Everyone off with their clothes. You'll find booths to one side there. Change into costumes you find there. Men on this side, women on that. The people stood uneasily about. I don't know if we should stay, said Miss Pope. I don't like the looks of this. 
It verges on blasphemy. Nonsense. A costume ball. Seems quite illegal, Mr. Stephens sniffed about. Come off it, Stendhal laughed. Enjoy yourselves. Tomorrow it'll be a ruin. Get in the booths. The house blazed with life and color. Harlequins rang by with belled caps, and white mice danced miniature quadrilles to the music of dwarfs who tickled tiny fiddles with tiny bows, and flags rippled from scorched beams while bats flew in clouds above gargoyle mouths which spouted down wine, cool, wild, and foaming. A creek wandered through the seven rooms of the masked ball. Guests sipped and found it to be sherry. Guests poured from the booths, transformed from one age into another, their faces covered with dominoes. The very act of putting on a mask, revoking all their licenses to pick a quarrel with fantasy and horror. The women swept about in red gowns, laughing. The men danced them attendance. And on the walls were shadows with no people to throw them. And here or there were mirrors in which no image showed. All of us vampires, laughed Mr. Fletcher. Dead. There were seven rooms, each a different color. One blue, one purple, one green, one orange, another white, the sixth violet, and the seventh shrouded in black velvet. And in the black room was an ebony clock which struck the hour loud. And through these rooms the guests ran, drunk at last, among the robot fantasies, amid the dormice and mad hatters, the trolls and giants, the black cats and white queens. And under their dancing feet the floor gave off the massive pumping beat of a hidden and telltale heart. Mr. Stendhal, a whisper. Mr. Stendhal. A monster with the face of death stood at his elbow. It was Pike's. I must see you alone. What is it? Here. Pike's held out a skeleton hand. In it were a few half-melted charred wheels, nuts, cogs, bolts. Stendhal looked at them for a long moment. Then he drew Pike's into a corridor. Garrett, he whispered. Pikes nodded. He sent a robot in his place, cleaning out the incinerator a moment ago. I found these. They both stared at the fateful cogs for a time. This means the police will be here any minute, said Pikes. Our plan will be ruined. I don't know. Stendhal glanced in at the whirling yellow and blue and orange people. The music swept through the misting halls. I should have guessed. Garrett wouldn't be fool enough to come in person. But wait. What's the matter? Nothing. There's nothing the matter. Garrett sent a robot to us. Well, we sent one back. Unless he checks closely, he won't notice the switch. Of course. Next time, he'll come himself. Now that he thinks it's safe. Why, he might be at the door any minute in person. More wine, Pikes. The great bell rang. There he is now, I'll bet you. Go let Mr. Garrett in. Rapunzel let down her golden hair. Mr. Stendhal? Mr. Garrett? The real Mr. Garrett? The same. Garrett eyed the dank walls and the whirling people. I thought I'd better come see for myself. You can't depend on robots. Other people's robots especially. I also took the precaution of summoning the dismantlers. They'll be here in one hour to knock the props out from under this horrible place. Stendhal bowed. Thanks for telling me. He waved his hand. In the meantime, you might as well enjoy this. A little wine? 
No, thank you. What's going on? How low can a man sink? See for yourself, Mr. Garrett. Murder, said Garrett. Murder most foul, said Stendhal. A woman screamed. Miss Pope ran up, her face the color of a cheese. The most horrid thing just happened. I saw Miss Blunt strangled by an ape and stuffed up a chimney. They looked and saw the long yellow hair trailing down from the flue. Garrett cried out. Horrid, sobbed Miss Pope, and then ceased crying. She blinked and turned. Miss Blunt. Yes, said Miss Blunt, standing there. But I just saw you crammed up the flue. No, laughed Miss Blunt. A robot of myself, a clever facsimile. But, but, don't cry, darling. I'm quite all right. Let me look at myself. Well, so there I am, up the chimney like you said. Isn't that funny? Miss Blunt walked away, laughing. Have a drink, Garrett? I believe I will. That unnerved me. My God, what a place. This does deserve tearing down. For a moment there, Garrett drank. Another scream. Mr. Steffens, borne upon the shoulders of four white rabbits, was carried down a flight of stairs which magically appeared in the floor. Into a pit went Mr. Steffens, where bound and tied, he was left to face the advancing razor steel of a great pendulum which now whirled down, down, closer and closer to his outraged body. Is that me down there, said Mr. Steffens, appearing at Garrett's elbow? He bent over the pit. How strange, how odd to see yourself die. The pendulum made a final stroke. How realistic, said Mr. Steffens, turning away. Another drink, Mr. Garrett? Yes, please. It won't be long. The dismantlers will be here. Thank God. And for a third time, a scream. What now, said Garrett apprehensively. It's my turn, said Miss Drummond. Look. And a second Miss Drummond, shrieking, was nailed into a coffin and thrust into the raw earth under the floor. Why, I remember that gasped the investigator of moral climates, from the old forbidden books, the premature burial, and the others, the pit, the pendulum, and the ape, the chimney, the murders in the Rue Morgue, in a book I burned, yes. Another drink, Garrett. Here, hold your glass steady. My Lord, you have an imagination, haven't you? They stood and watched five others die, one in the mouth of a dragon, the others thrown off into the black tarn, sinking and vanishing. Would you like to see what we have planned for you? asked Stendhal. Certainly, said Garrett. What's the difference? We'll blow the whole damn thing up anyway. You're nasty. Come along then, this way. And he led Garrett down into the floor, through numerous passages, and down again upon spiral stairs into the earth, into the catacombs. What do you want to show me down here? said Garrett. Yourself killed. A duplicate? Yes, and also something else. What? The Amontillado, said Stendhal, going ahead with a blazing lantern which he held high. Skeletons froze half out of coffin lids. Garrett held his hand to his nose, his face disgusted. The what? Haven't you ever heard of the Amontillado? No. Don't you recognize this? Stendhal pointed to a cell. Should I? Or this? Stendhal produced a trowel from under his cape, smiling. What's that thing? Come, said Stendhal. They stepped into the cell. In the dark, Stendhal affixed the chains to the half-drunken man. For God's sake, what are you doing? shouted Garrett, rattling about. I'm being ironic. Don't interrupt the man in the midst of being ironic. It's not polite. There, 
You've locked me in chains. So I have. What are you going to do? Leave you here. You're joking. A very good joke. Where's my duplicate? Don't we see him killed? There is no duplicate. But the others. The others are dead. The ones you saw killed were the real people. The duplicates, the robots, stood by and watched. Garrett said nothing. Now you're supposed to say, for the love of God, Montresor, said Stendhal. And I will reply, yes, for the love of God. Won't you say it? Come on, say it. You fool, must I coax you? Say it, say, for the love of God, Montresor. I won't, you idiot. Get me out of here. He was sober now. Here, put this on. Stendhal tossed in something that belled and rang. What is it? A cap and bells. Put it on, and I might let you out. Stendhal! Put it on, I said. Garrett obeyed. The bells tinkled. Don't you have a feeling that this has all happened before, inquired Stendhal, setting to work with trowel and mortar and brick now? What are you doing? Walling you in. Here's one row. Here's another. You're insane. I won't argue that point. You'll be prosecuted for this. He tapped the brick and placed it on the wet mortar, humming. Now there was a thrashing and pounding and a crying out from within the darkening place. The bricks rose higher. More thrashing, please, said Stendhal. Let's make it a good show. Let me out! Let me out! There was one last brick to shove into place. The screaming was continuous. Garrett called Stendhal softly. Garrett silenced himself. Garrett, said Stendhal, do you know why I've done this to you? Because you burned Mr. Poe's books without really reading them. You took other people's advice that they needed burning. Otherwise, you'd have realized what I was going to do to you when we came down here a moment ago. Ignorance is fatal, Mr. Garrett. Garrett was silent. I want this to be perfect, said Stendhal, holding his lantern up so its light penetrated in upon the slumped figure. Jingle your bells softly. The bells rustled. Now, if you'll please say, for the love of God, Montresor, I might let you free. The man's face came up in the light. There was a hesitation. Then grotesquely, the man said, for the love of God, Montresor. Ah, said Stendhal, eyes closed. He shoved the last brick into place and mortared it tight. Requiescat in pace, dear friend. He hastened from the catacomb. In the seven rooms, the sound of a midnight clock brought everything to a halt. The red death appeared. Stendhal turned for a moment at the door to watch, and then he ran out of the great house, across the moat, to where a helicopter waited. Ready, Pikes? Ready. There it goes. They looked at the great house, smiling. It began to crack down the middle, as with an earthquake. And as Stendhal watched the magnificent sight, he heard Pikes reciting behind him in a low, cadenced voice. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound, like the voice of a thousand waters. 
and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. The helicopter rose over the steaming lake and flew into the west. Come on, thar, Lemuel, where's that thar pitch pipe? Oh, come on, fella, lose yourself. Give it. Let me tell to you the story of the love that's in my heart. On a balmy summer evening, I was struck with Cupid's dart. I was sleeping on a park bench as a wind blew through the trees. When a woman turned the corner with a beard down to her knees. Oh, I love the bearded lady cause her kisses tickle so. Her whiskers make me prickle from my head down to my toe. Oh, that kiss with the mustache in it, no wonder I get passionate. I love the bearded lady cause her whiskers tickle so. Now the story of our romance is a lengthy one for suit. It was full of ups and downfalls, so I'll tell you the truth. She said, may I sit down? I know that some men might well have jeered. But I politely said, why, no, sit down and rest your beard. Oh, I love the bearded lady, cause her kisses tickle so. Her whiskers make me prickle from my head down to my toe. Oh, that kiss with the mustache in it, no wonder I get passionate. I love the bearded lady, cause her whiskers tickle so. Now our paradise was perfect, till a barber happened by, and his eyes went green with envy as her whiskers caught his eye. Oh, this goddess that I worshipped has developed feet of clay. He shaved her once, she liked it, now she shaves three times a day. I love the bearded lady, cause her kisses tickle so. Her whiskers make me prickle from my head down to my toe. Oh, that kiss with the mustache in it, no wonder I get passionate. I love the bearded lady, cause her whiskers tickle so. Now I've searched the whole world over for a beard as fine as that. And if you think you could find one, well, you're talking through your hat. So if you should see a bearded lady, please remember me. And have her call me up sometime at Main 6853. Oh, I love the bearded lady cause her kisses tickle so. Her whiskers make me prickle from my head down to my toe. Oh, that kiss with the mustache in it. No wonder I get passionate. I love the bearded lady cause her whiskers tickle so. And I'll be right back with one to grow on. What? <laughs> Watch. Oh, here comes a nerd. Can I play? <laughs> Listen, Bob. Why don't you go catch some of your butterflies or something? <laughs> this is a serious game. <laughs> so Bobby's an oddball, right? Wrong. It's funny, but believe it or not, some people have thought I was strange. But once they got to know me, they realized I wasn't. You see, it goes back to that old saying, you don't really know someone until you know someone. 
People have a way of surprising you, if you give them a chance. Aw, oh, come on, guys. What have we got to lose? Hey, Bobby! Hey! I didn't know I could shoot like that! My team, my team, my and that's one to grow on. Well, I don't know what we're getting paid for this month, Frank, but it's the end anyways. What's the one last thing? On July 27, 1940, the official version of Bugs Bunny appeared in the cartoon short Wild Hair. An early version of Bugs Bunny appeared as early as 1938, but 1940 is considered the real birth. In The Rabbit's Honor, we have a clip from Chuck Jones talking about the creation of old bugs. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. All the characters are a process of learning. It's hard for people to understand who, who watch actors to realize that, that actors come with an ability. They've played other parts. They have some background. When you bring in a drawing, all you have is a drawing. And you have to put in the characters, the little mistakes they make and so on. It's not important to have them talk in a certain way or talk through their nose or something like that. So there are many things we have to find out about the character. In Bugs's case, the first picture that Bugs made, he was crazy. That was, and the way we soon realized that there's a great deal of difference between being crazy and pretending like you're crazy. The Marx Brothers were pretending like that, particularly Groucho, were pretending. He was trying to make sense out of the behavior of his brothers. And uh, that, that gave him a wonderful balance to it. But he was always in there trying to get some sense out of them. And, uh, and Bugs Bunny uh, uh, is a much more human character. Uh, in looking back on him, I, not that I thought about it at the time, but if I had to, to devise a mixture of well-known personalities to describe Bugs Bunny, I'd say he would start out with uh, Professor Higgins, uh, a quiet living rabbit who was living down in a hole, minding his own business, perhaps pursuing the history of rabbits in Sanskrit or something. And someone comes along and tries to disturb his equanimity. And so doing, then he, uh, he is not a person like Woody Woodpecker would go out and, bo and bother anybody. He has to be provoked. And we learned that. It was very important that he be provoked because otherwise he'd be a bully. And, and we didn't want that. We wanted a nice person like, like myself. Somebody does something too, but he, then he comes forward and acts like a hero. At that point, he then becomes something very much like, uh, like Errol Flynn, perhaps, or Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And so now we have two strong personality traits there. Now we need one more because Bugs would rather solve his problems orally than he would any other way. So we take a, a dollop of Dorothy Parker and put it into this mixture and stuff that into a rabbit skin, you got Bugs Bunny. And we didn't know at the time, but that's a way of kind of analyzing to find what is in there because it's very important for Bugs. And, and, and Bugs very seldom, they're always talking about Bugs hitting people. Look, and my knowledge on all, any picture I ever made or any other picture that Frizz ever made, I never heard of, of him hitting anybody over the head with anything. And that wasn't the way it worked. He, in order to establish the character, he had to take pleasure in, 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 in defending himself. And if he had the choice between running or, or even conquering somebody, he would prefer the track of obscuring them, getting them off balance. And that's much better, much stronger. Better, better comedy, too.